Hello once again, listener, and I'm delighted to welcome you to yet another episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology Podcast in conversation with I'm Hugh Thomas, the Deputy Editor. In today's episode, we're discussing a pragmatic trial comprising both randomized and non-randomized patient choice pathways, exploring the surgical versus non-surgical management for those patients with malignant small bowel obstruction. I am delighted to have the corresponding author of the paper, Professor Robert Krauss, joining me today to discuss the work. He's Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania, Chief of Surgical Services at the Corporal Michael J. Crescent Veteran Affairs Medical Center, and Associate Chief of Staff for Surgery for the Wilmington Veteran Affairs Medical Center. His research interests are predominantly focused on cancer survivorship issues, including palliative and end-of-life care. First Krauss, thank you very much for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Wonderful. Obviously, we're here today to uh, talk about the trial on which you're a corresponding author, where you're investigating the uh, surgical versus non-surgical management for patients with malignant small bowel obstruction. And I thought we could just begin right at the beginning and just talk briefly about what is malignant bowel obstruction and how does it affect patients? It's actually a great question because there's been a lot of different definitions in the literature over the years of malignant bowel obstruction. It's, a, it's an issue that we as surgeons have struggled with for a long time. We set up an international conference back in 2004, and one of the missions was, in addition to designing a trial for this problem, was to help further define it. And so malignant bowel obstruction really is a clinical issue of a blockage below the ligament of trites, meaning below the first part of the intestine, and it has to have both clinical and radiologic evidence. And then to be considered malignant bowel obstruction, it has to ha- have an intra-abdominal, including retroperitoneal cancer that is, is deemed incurable, as well as it could be a non-intra-abdominal cancer, but there had to be clear evidence of, of um, metastasis or spread within the abdomen. And so that's a, that's a malignant bowel obstruction um, it most commonly affects the small bowel, and it is a very common problem, uh, relatively speaking, as far as uh, for patients that, that surgeons have to uh, often deal with. The symptoms, as you can imagine, with a blockage are bloating, pain, nausea, vomiting, inability to have a, um, a bowel movement, inability to eat. And so those are all very, it's a, a very uncomfortable compendium of problems that a, a patient will be facing. And just to continue setting the scene, how is management of malignant bowel obstruction currently approached? What are the options available to uh, patients and caregivers? And and before you began this study that we're discussing, what were the key areas of uncertainty in those areas as well? So there are certain patients where there is no uncertainty. If somebody comes in and has what we in surgery call an acute abdomen or evidence of an impending perforation or a perforation itself, the person needs an emergency operation or they decide that they don't want anything and they will die. Or there are certain patients who are imminently dying for disease and, and so therefore you don't offer them an operation. The problem that we're dealing with is, is really most of the in-between. People who show up who've got a bowel obstruction, who aren't in this acute setting where there an operation needs to be offered or they will die or they're actively dying. And that's really most of the people who, who enter the hospital with this problem. 
And and so the issue is either do you take them to the operating room with this because a, an obstruction is almost by definition a surgical or has been at least historically a surgical issue, or do you see if you can get by with more conservative measures, which we often do with bowel obstructions of benign uh, causes, and that includes a nasogastric tube, hydration, potentially some pain medicine, and often some uh, medications or other medications that may decrease the swelling, such as octreotide or steroid in some settings. So the question becomes, is this somebody we should take to the operating room or not? And it, be, and it, and it often is a, is a great dilemma for the treating teams. And then moving on to uh, the study itself, uh, obviously there's a lot of key issues to be considered around, around this, in this area. How did you approach the overall design of the study? We know, obviously, that conduct of successful studies in palliative and surgical settings especially is, 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 can be very difficult. Uh, and what were the key problems that you had to overcome to, to get this study over the line? So this study was initially actually designed back at that international meeting in 2004, and it ultimately went through several different versions before the final version that was funded and then able to carry out. It was a novel hybrid study where we had a, um, a, a randomized arm as well as a non-randomized arm, but where every potential patient had to be randomizable. And what that meant is they had to be a surgical candidate. The, the surgical team felt there was equipoise, felt that not necessarily they didn't have a bias because everybody has bias, but it was reasonable not to operate or to operate. Either realm was was a reasonable thing to do. And so that's how the ultimate design came into being. And then, of course, as you mentioned, it's, it's a very difficult population to place on a prospective study. That's one of the reasons why we felt um, that a randomized-only study would be really too difficult to do. So we wanted a non-randomized component with the same entry criteria to augment the randomized arm and vice versa, the randomized two to augment the non-randomized arm. Um, as far as the, the lot to, to overcome, it really took an awful lot of work and education as well as finding the right sites around the, the United States and also in Latin America where we had surgical and other clinical teams that really understood the importance of this study, this problem, and were willing to put patients on. And one of the aspects of the study that uh, I think is worth mentioning is, is the primary endpoint. And the primary endpoint that you selected is the number of, of good days. How did you define that endpoint? And, and why did you select that definition of outcome over other options? So I'm going to go back to that international uh, meeting where we had experts from literally around the world to uh, discuss and what, what is the most meaningful outcome for this population of patients. And as you can imagine, we mentioned a lot of the most important things for people, the ability to eat, the ability to have bowel movements, the ability not to have or no pain, no nausea, et cetera. All those things are really important. But what is the most important? And we, d we decided that, um, that there was a lot of evidence that patients who are facing the end of life felt that being out of the hospital um, was really the, their most important. And the composite 
endpoint, including um, being alive, was um, also felt to be what we what could be thought of as as a really important goal of people. And so that's where we came up with the good days um, out of the hospital and alive. But it doesn't mean it wasn't really, really important and where we t- had a tremendous amount of effort of collecting other important direct quality of life or surrogate quality of life data, such as the ability to eat and quality of life issues. Great. And, and moving on to the conduct of the study then, uh, how many patients decided or chose to be to be randomized or, or chose not to be randomized? And then of those patients who didn't choose to be randomized, what was the breakdown in terms of choosing surgical versus non-surgical management? About a quarter of the patients were in the randomized group, about 25 in each arm. We uh, accrued slightly more than that, but you know, based on um, a criteria, some were, were, were dropped from the final numbers. So then that meant 150 um, were actually in the non-randomized component. Of those in the non-randomized component, 92 were um, in the non-surgical arm, 58 in the um, surgical arm. That was one of the differences that we, and, and, and actually in the accrual process, we ultimately closed first the um, non-randomized non-surgical arm. We had fully uh, um, accrued to it, and we were very happy how we were able to continue accruing to complete the study even with with closing that arm, which we felt was important at the time. Um, the only difference, and, and, and one of the really important things to sh- that, that the study showed is, is basically patients were essentially just as sick in each of the arms, which, which is further evidence of the similarities. The one difference that we did see uh, was related to specialty you put patients on the study of the non-randomized, non-surgical arm, there were more gynecologic oncologists than other surgeons, which was an interesting difference. We controlled for that in the analysis, but that is something uh, that we did note. And in terms of the primary outcome and the secondary outcomes, what did you see? So ultimately, we in the, in for the primary outcome of good days, we really didn't see any difference between those that underwent um, surgery or those that did not go, uh, undergo surgery. And we really didn't see uh, any differences in survival. The median survival or, or the, was, was about almost exactly three months, which was what we had um, estimated in the beginning of the study. Um, and it really was no difference. There was really no difference in the ability to eat the difference that we did see was that those who were in the surgical arms ultimately had um, a better outcomes with the individual quality of life outcomes that we looked at for this analysis. So nausea, vomiting, bloating, pain, and also constipation. And constipation is really a surrogate for a blockage. And so we did find that there was an advantage to the to surgery for those outcomes. And and how do you think then these findings might influence treatment decisions both for patients and, and for their caregivers such as yourself? And and where do you think this research that goes in the future? 
you know, as a, as a clinician, as a researcher, information well, that we have gained and, and are allowed to share with our, our patients and families is really important. So when talking to a patient and they present with this problem, they're surgically eligible, and telling them that there really is no difference as far as how long they will live or stay in the hospital where they get an operation or not. Most patients and others have shown not having an operation is actually a pretty important outcome. And they may choose, I, if I'm going to do as, as well, I don't want that operation. But added with the information that over time, through the course of your life, you, you likely will do better as far as less nausea, vomiting, and pain, um, and, and uh, bloating, people may opt for an earlier operation. Um, and I think a lot of clinicians may, with this information, will hopefully steer the patients more readily towards an operation. And I think that is a great benefit. Then the other big question is as far as what's next. So, so first of all, from this particular study, we, as you can imagine, we, we still have a lot of data that we're in the process of analyzing. We're, one of the things of uh, great import is we really want to look at, we have a lot of patients who underwent an operation. Can we determine, can we get any better information about what operation actually may be the best for a patient uh, in this situation? We also have some other um, uh, quality of life data where we look at you know, global quality of life and things like that where we can look at a little more in depth. And finally, we're also going to be look at um, more specifically some dietary outcomes. Nobody's ever, you know, this study is unique in our ability to look prospectively um, at this population patient in such a large number, but no one's ever accumulated data related to what actually people can and will eat over time with this problem. So that's another thing that we're, we're going to look more at. I think long-term, one of the other big what's sort of next issues is this study gives us the ability to see that we can accrue to a study like this. And there are a lot of other palliative care questions that really are on the board that we can and should look at. For example, patients who have ascites, malignant ascites, or patients who have um, other carcinomatosis problems that there's other treatment modalities that we can offer and and hopefully improve ultimately quality of life outcomes as well as potentially survival. In addition, the, the outcome measure that we've used in this study, the, the good days composite measure, has been also adopted by others and likely can it's a it's a meaningful and understandable outcome for, for most people and patients. And so hopefully that can and will be used um, in other similar studies in the future. Wonderful. Professor Krauss, thank you very much once again for taking the time to tour us through the paper and uh, congratulations on some wonderful work with uh, some very important messages there. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate your time. You can read the trial on management of malignant bowel obstructions online now at thelancet.com. Thank you once again to Professor Krauss and thank you for listening to this episode of the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology podcast in conversation with. Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With wherever you usually get your podcasts.